Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the podcast where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. As you know by this point, this season is all about the Fallout role-playing game, so we're having fun in our own version of the Wasteland. If you still need a rule book, check out your local game or bookstore, or check out the Modifius Entertainment website at modiphius.net. Now, before we get into this week's stuff, I have several corrections and updates I need to make because I've had multiple things pointed out to me by our listeners, and I appreciate you checking on me on that, so just keep it keep it coming. First, I was asked why I was doing a wise guy voice for Bruno the Robot in last week's episode. I have to admit that was an aesthetic choice. I always thought it would be interesting to have a Russian mob boss with a mafia-style enforcer, so that's why I went where I did. Of course, I'm digging directly into the cliché category, but we're in the entertainment business here, so let's just go with it. There were concerns raised about the fight with the super mutants on the way to the Jessup Chemicals facility at the old Union Station. Several of our listeners thought I meant that the group would be fighting a total of the number of group members minus one Two times. That was a mistake on my part, as I should have been more clear. The group will only fight the number of mutants equal to the number of group members minus one. And what I meant to say is that if they run away from one group, another one will fight them. The other group would basically chase them until the second group picks them up, and then that group will head off and do other things. Unless, of course, you just like to drop both groups of mutants onto your players. I mean, that is your prerogative, of course. Last, I need to make sure we're all on the same page about something. When hacking computers, the check should always be intelligence plus science. I think I've done the lockpick thing a couple of times, and you shouldn't be using that for computers. So, if you hear me say lockpick when we're hacking computers, use intelligence plus science, then drop me a line smacking me in the head to remind me to not do that anymore. Okay, so with the corrections out of the way, let's get to building. Last week, our build found our intrepid adventurers headed for Jessup Chemicals to dig up some dirt on Jackson Denman, and we ended the build on a cliffhanger. We're picking up right where we left our group last week, at the bottom of the staircase, gathered back together after doing their separate jobs. They've already noticed that they can't get out through the door they came in, so they need to quickly reevaluate how to get out, especially considering there are alarms going off and people possibly looking for them. Now, these steps do go down, so in theory, the group should go down them, especially since there doesn't seem to be anyone coming up them. The people they see running are coming from the production floor, the closed door they came in, from the other end of the hall, and from the floor above them. So, let's head down. They'll head down a flight of stairs, and it's obvious that this is as low as they can go since these stairs don't go down any further. And as they get down there, they realize this is a section of the plant that isn't used very much. The lights are lower, so it's darker down here, and the walls aren't as well painted and the floors aren't as well maintained as what they saw upstairs. But it's the silence that's the biggest thing they notice. They can still hear the alarms from the floor above them, but there aren't any alarms going off down here. There aren't any flashing lights either. The hallway also happens to be shorter than the floor above, and there aren't doors at the end. There are four doors along the wall opposite the stairs, and if they look, there's a door on the wall on either side of the stairs. While you can number the doors however you want, here's how I'm laying it out. As you stand at the base of the stairs, we number them clockwise. So the door on the wall to the left of the stairs is one, the four on the opposite side are two through five, and the door on the wall to the right of the stairs is six. Now, the group is probably going to want to crank up some lights, so if somebody has a Pip-Boy or if they have other light sources, time to crank them up. 
We'll cover the doors in order, with the exception of the door with the major deal behind it. Door number one, it's a storage room, though everything in here seems to be broken. It's not stacked in any sort of logical way. Things seem to have just been tossed in here and left where they were. The room's only 20 by 20, so there's not a whole lot of room to get in and move around. Basically, one person can step in there and still be able to turn and look. And there's nothing of value in here. Room 2. It's a bit larger than 1. At 30 by 30, it appears to be some sort of old office. The desks and chairs are covered in dust, and it appears that nobody has been in here for a very long time. But the group won't get much time to check as eight rad roaches attack as soon as everyone who's entering the office enters. Stats for rad roaches are on page 350. Door 3, another office. Same size as 2. No attacks this time, but they can scavenge a couple of containers of dirty water, a stim pack, and 10 caps. But it'll take them 5 minutes to find it all, and unless they specifically say they're looking for stuff, they won't find it. Door number 5. Yes, I'm doing these out of order because four is the door that wins the pony. This is another storage room for broken furniture, same size as one, and it's full of broken chairs. Room six, same size as rooms one and five, but it has a single desk towards the back of the room, and the walls have various shelves from wall to wall. The vials and beakers are empty, but they see a number of magazines equal to the number of members of the group sitting on the desk. These are perfectly good copies of Tesla Science Magazine, and each member should get one. They're on page 177, and I'd roll on the random table to decide what you're giving them. All right, so let's get into the proverbial deep dookie and check behind door number four. First off, it's locked, and they notice there are three locks on it. They can be picked, but each lock is a perception plus lock pick with a difficulty of four. I'm setting the difficulty higher because they've got anxiety or anxiousness about getting this done since they haven't found another way out, and they have to be thinking they'll be found eventually. When they get the locks picked and the door opened, they immediately realize something's not right. There's no floor in here. It's a muddy, damp floor, like it's just the ground. If they've got a Pip-Boy, they're also aware that they're picking up some radiation. However, they see a large hole in the wall opposite them, and while they're probably hesitant to head through it, it's probably better than heading back. Oh, and if they do head back, or if they decide to not head down, we'll cover what happens momentarily. When the group gets about three-quarters of the way across the, I guess we'll call it a marsh, they suddenly hear the sounds of something bursting out of the ground behind them. As they check, it's a rad scorpion. Details for these are on page 351. If they choose to turn and fight, run it. If they decide to run, it's going to chase them. Now, the hole empties into a tunnel, which is wide enough for the group to run three wide through it. Heads north for about 300 yards before it ramps up towards ground level, and they know it's ground level because they can see daylight. And just when they think they're in the clear, there's four mutant hounds at the hole waiting to attack whatever comes out of it. Details for those are on page 349. So, they'll have to attack the hounds, and by the end of round one, the rad scorpion will join in if they didn't already attack and kill it. Once they're done, they have a minute to catch their breath and see where they are. They're just north of Union Station on the site of what is at present an office tower. They're right at the base of the rubble, and while they can hear the alarms from the building across the street, it doesn't appear that anyone is coming to look for them. So let's pause for a moment and level the group up, as I don't think we've done that in a bit. If we have, well, they just got a free level out of us, and that's okay. One health point, one skill point, one perk. Now, what happens if they decide to try to head out the way they came in? Maybe your group likes to have the proverbial shootout at the OK Corral. They're going to have to deal with the guards. 
I like the stats for the mercenary, which are on pages 392 and 393, so let's use those. The major difference is that they're hired guards for the labs, and they wear the same types of uniforms they saw when they saved Juliet a bit back. There will be enough for two guards for each group member. If, by chance, they get them all, they can exit with a swift kick to the door, then they'll have to haul tail to get out of there. They can head straight east towards Diamond Pass and get there without any further incidents. And we'll pause this here for the aforementioned level up and getting the other right up to this point. Going back to those who came out through the ground, they need to figure out where to go next. They could find a safe place to regroup and discuss what they found, and if they want to do that, skip what's coming next and or use it if it's what they decide to do. I mean, they could decide to head straight for the hospital, so be prepared to do that. But we'll start with the group deciding they'd like to see Victor and share what they've got. Setup's the usual. Bruno meets them, takes them to the office, and handles introductions. When they get inside the office, Victor requests they sit and asks them if they're there to share information. When they reply in the affirmative, he's willing to listen to what they've got, and he pays 50 caps for each segment of information they give him. When they've said all they have to say, he's got a few thoughts. You can also intersperse his thoughts as the group is speaking to him. I had assumed for some time that Jessup was at least somewhat responsible for the super mutants. What I am still uncertain of is who they intend to market them to. That is something I will need to look into further, and I can see another job in your future, if you are so inclined. The food additive thing really upsets him. I will now have to find a new source for our food here, or I will have to find a chemist who can produce an antidote to the chemical they've used. The hospital thing, that, that doesn't really shock him. I have heard for some time the stories of those who go into the hospital to have injuries repaired and never come out. Now we at least have an idea of what is happening. It may be another job to be done at some point. By the way, that 50 caps per segment of information that Victor's going to pay is non-negotiable. It's a take it or leave it. And if you feel like we're giving out too many caps, then cut the number in half or cut it even into a third if you'd like. If the group is hell-bent on scoping out the hospital, Victor's not going to try to talk them out of it. That being said, he does have a suggestion. You have been in the facility creating the super mutant formula. You have been in the headquarters for the company itself. Yes, I would not argue with heading to the hospital to see what you can see, but I wonder whether or not heading to the facility at the dome first is a good idea. You may be able to acquire more information than you have at present, and it might alter your plans for the hospital. You could also head back to the facility on the landing. After all, you were unable to gather any useful information when you were there due to the nature of your reason for being there. So the group has three possible tasks. Since I have no idea which one my group will take, I have no way of predicting which one your group will take. Victor will suggest that the group get something to eat and take a moment or two to heal themselves, and he offers a dose of rat away to each member of the group. He also suggests they visit one of the merchants in the past to look into upgrading their gear, as now that Jessup Chemicals is aware that someone has hacked their systems, it will be a tougher fight wherever you go. They've got a couple of choices for weapons, ammo, and armor. The Mighty Crusade sells only weapons, ammo, and armor, while the Emporium sells a variety of things. To keep things simple, let's do it this way. At the Mighty Crusade, any weapons, ammo, or armor, rarity three or below, is available. It's run by a mountain of a man, Jacob Dune, and you can fill in his description as you see fit. Jacob's prices are 10% higher than in the book, and the haggles can go from there. Jacob's number is 16, so go with that for the opposed checks. His prices won't go any higher, so they don't have that to fear. 
At the Emporium, Fawn, who's a waif of a young lady, has any weapons or ammo of level 2 or lower. She's also got consumables of rarity 2 or less, as well as chemicals. Her number for a haggle is 14, and she starts at book price. Now, the group still doesn't have a ton of caps to spend, unless they've just got that much stuff to sell, so the bigger, badder stuff is still going to be out of reach. But they can get some more decent gear and more ammo for their coming missions. Once they've finished all their shopping, and if they want to look for some other things, you can certainly plot out a few other shops. I mean, just go ahead and do that. I'd avoid other weapons and gear shops just because we don't want to give them too much variety. If you're curious about what it would look like, check out Diamond City in the Fallout 4 video game. The shopping setup is similar, though we're putting our own spin on it for this game. Anyway, once they're done with all that, there's still a decent amount of daylight left, and by this point, the group probably doesn't care too much about running into ghouls, so it's probably not a huge deal if they're out after dark. Of course, you and I both know that making a habit of that is going to come back to bite them later on. We've basically laid out three options, and since I have no idea which one the group will choose first, I'm going to do them in a counterclockwise order. There's also a bit of logic involved in this, as the Laclede's landing option is close to the dome, but is technically a bit closer to Diamond Pass, so it's the landing first. Since they've been here before, we're not going to spend a bunch of time getting into the details of getting there. Just refer back to your notes from that mission on Saving Juliet a few shows back for the particulars. As they turn onto the street the facility is on, they immediately can see that something's not quite right. There are no guards on the outside of the building. Now, this should put the group on high alert, and they'll be looking for some sort of overwatch on the building. Snipers, robots, turrets, you name it. It's a straight perception check, but the difficulty's a two. So long as somebody makes it, they'll notice that nothing appears to be keeping an eye on the building, which should be even more strange. If nobody gets it, they'll think they see the bogeyman everywhere, which can be fun in and of itself if you're sick and twisted like me. They can get right up to the doors of the facility without incident. They're locked, so we'll go with Perception plus Lockpick difficulty 3. The doors open, and the building seems to be running on full power, so the lights in the lobby are as bright as they were the last time the group was here. It's also apparent that the damage from their recent visit here has been repaired. Now, I do know that my group's first stop once they get inside, and close the doors, by the way, will be to check out the security station that they used the first go-around. We'll call this very easy access, so it's intelligence plus science difficulty of one. They get to the building menu, and they've got three options. Master door controls, security, overseer protocols. So let's go through these in order. The master door control option allows them to unlock all of the doors in the facility, which we can safely assume the group's going to do. Security gives them the option to disengage the security protocols, which means all laser turrets and protectron robots are powered down. Again, it's safe to assume the group's going to do that. The Overseer Protocols option seems odd to the group, but it reads as follows. All research and material are to be backed up and secured in the office of the Overseer. Should anyone other than the Overseer be found in possession of this information, they will be dealt with with maximum prejudice. That's what they get from the terminal. Now, when they disengaged the door locks, they heard two very loud clicks come from either wall, plus the door they've already been in. Checking the walls, they find a security door on each side that they didn't notice during their initial visit. This is easy to explain, as the doors just look like part of the wall when they're locked, and unlocking them caused the edges to pop out a bit. Plus, the last time they were here, they 
were in a bit of a hurry, so looking for secret doors probably wasn't very high on their list of priorities. So the obvious first choice here would be to head back into the lab-looking place they rescued Juliet from during their last trip here. The first thing they notice is that all of the shelving in the room has been cleared. No beakers, no test tubes, no racks, nothing. The operating table they took Juliet off of is still there, and the cabinets on the back and side walls are still there, but the cabinets have also been emptied of their contents. There's a terminal on a desk in the middle of the cabinets on the back wall, and they can hack their way in with an intelligence plus science difficulty two. Once they're in, they realize the entire terminal itself has been wiped, as other than the login screen, there's nothing for them to access. Now, about this point, it should be occurring to the group that this smells a whole lot like a setup of some kind. Might have sounded like one a few moments earlier, if we're being honest. The group might decide that digging for information here would be a waste of time and leave. If they choose to do that, they're done for the week, because we're not going to cover the dome until next week. However, if the group decides to keep checking anyway, they have their choice of doors to enter. One on the left and one on the right. From the main hall, of course. Regardless of which door they choose, they notice a short hallway towards the east, which is the same direction that the lab is on the floor, and meeting a stairway curving up a floor. Looking to the west, the hallway continues down to the door they saw backup coming out of during their last visit. Heading up the stairs, they find themselves in front of what appears to be a large office of some type. The landing they're standing on has smaller rooms to the left and right, and sticking their heads in, they see a table and six chairs in each room, and nothing else. The guess would be is that this is where the security guards would sit, though you can't really confirm or deny it. The door to the office is unlocked, so long as they unlocked everything downstairs. There are empty shelves lining the walls, and towards the back of the office is a desk with a terminal on it. Again, they can hack it with Intelligence plus Science, Difficulty 2. Once they get in, there are three options. Master Door Control, Security, Eyes Only. Master Door Control and Security are the same as they've seen before. Eyes Only, however, should intrigue them. When they click on it, they realize quickly that the file's been scrubbed. But they don't have time to think about that too much because something else pops up on the screen. Building Auto Destruct Activated. Then it starts a countdown from 20. The group should realize they've got 20 seconds to get out of the building. So long as they don't mess around, 20 seconds is more than enough time to get down the stairs and out the door at the end of the hall. It would be wise to head away from the building as well, and they get a few strides down the street when the explosions happened and the building implodes. When the dust settles, there's a large crater where the building used to be. So that option was a loser for the group. And that's where we're going to wrap the build this week. That's because we've got another recap from my group since we played last week. Now, over the past couple of weeks, many of you have reached out to me via email or the socials and asked for me to do a full introduction of my players and the characters they're playing since we didn't really do this properly when we started the show. And since the player lineup's a bit different this go-around, there are some folks who are a bit confused about who is playing what character. Since our recap of my game is going to be shorter this week due to, let's just say, factors, I thought this would be a good time to do these intros. And I'm going to do them in alphabetical order just to keep myself from getting confused. We'll start with Aniston. He's playing Initiate Diamate, who's a Brotherhood of Steel initiate. To this point in the campaign, Aniston's role-playing has grown leaps and bounds from where he was in the Deadlands game, as he's working to make decisions based on what he feels would be the best decision for his character to make, rather than trying to be funny or eccentric. And he is doing a really good job of that to this point. 
Braden is next. For the record, he's Aniston's brother, which means Jim has both of his sons playing in the game with him. I'll discuss how that's going in a minute. Braden's playing Arthur Lawrence, who is also a Brotherhood of Steel initiate. Now, Braden's never played a tabletop role-playing game before, but he is taking to it very well. He's also the one who wore his Fallout vault costume for the first session, which speaks to his excitement about Fallout. I also do need to note that Aniston and Braden tend to work along the same lines and paths, and that makes sense considering their backgrounds. So to that point, their role-playing has been pretty good to this point in the game. Clayton's up next. He's playing Vlad Dormich, a survivor he built to be more of a mercenary. What's funny about that, and Clayton's the one who pointed it out, is that his mercenary can't seem to shoot anybody, but seems to be the face of the group, which means he's handling negotiations. He's also been the top healer slash medic in the group as well, which means that his character isn't playing to this point the way he'd intended it to. However, and much to his credit, he's rolled with it and has played the character the way it's worked out for him, which is difficult to do for experienced gamers, let alone somebody who's really never played an entire campaign. Gabe is playing a ghoul named Raymond, which he and I discussed in some detail before we started playing. The reason we did that is because Brotherhood of Steel members tend to not like ghouls, at least in the video game. So Gabe and I discussed the situation with Aniston and Braden, and they said they'd be cool with it, especially since Gabe's not a feral ghoul, and to this point, it's all worked out well. Jim is next, and he's playing a Mr. Gutsy. Now, I think I mentioned this once before, but Jim admitted to me he's not much of a fan of the Fallout role-playing game. He's noted that there are several other post-apocalyptic games he'd prefer to play. But he decided that rather than be the killjoy, he'd create a character that would be, in his words, fun to play. Sinclair is a robot who's been rebuilding himself as need be over the years, and the rebuilding efforts have led to, let's call them glitches in his programming. He also seems to be quite literal, and he doesn't have a great handle on subtleties. Best comparison I can give you is Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, though I'm pretty sure Jim would argue with me on that particular comparison. Max is playing a vault dweller, with the focus being on vault security. As you might note, he hasn't named his character yet, but even with that, he's been taking a greater interest in the roleplay aspect of the game, and he's been very well engaged in the game to this point. Scott's up next. He's playing a survivor named Eddie Reed. Scott's the kind of player most GMs like to have at the table because he's not overly concerned about what system you're playing. He's just there to play the character and have fun. And I'd say to this point, he's been having a lot of fun. Tyler's last on our list, but certainly not least. He's playing a Mr. Gutsy he named Murdoch, M-U-R-D-O-C, all capitals. When he first worked the name up, Gabe, Jim, and I thought he'd named his robot MODOK, M-O-D-O-K, all capitals. And if you're up on your comic book characters, you can see there why we might have been a bit concerned. I think I mentioned this as well before, but Tyler made sure Murdoch has a very high initiative score because, as he said, he was tired of not getting to act much in the Deadlands game. I also need to note that both Braden and Clayton took the companion perk, so they've each got a dog meat dog. I really need to get them to name their dogs and make them part of everything that's going on, but I uh, I keep forgetting to do that. So note to self, get on that. And I have a question that I need to answer. I've been asked why I refer to my players by name instead of character name when I'm doing these recaps. Basically, I do it because it's easier for me when I'm taking notes to put the first letter of the player name down when I'm jotting their actions. I also do it because, let's face it, I'm lousy with names. So unless or until I get a list with the character names sitting in front of me, remembering their character names will be darn near impossible. 
Finally, I'll note we've got pictures for everyone in the group except for Braden and Clayton up on the website, badgeandproductions.net. Note to Gabe, get on that. Oh, and I did say we talk about how it's going with Jim and both of his sons playing the game. Actually, very well. All three have been able to set aside the familial relationship inside the game itself and then resume it outside of it. So really has worked well. And and when I say outside of it, when we stop for breaks, that relationship kicks back up. When we start the game back up, it's back to we're players. So works really, really well. So with that, we've covered our player introductions. Now we recap. Our group picked up after doing their business at Liza's place, and we picked up with Liza making her business offer to the group. They immediately agreed to do the job, but Scott asked if it would be possible to get 100 caps total if they managed to bring Manny back alive. I realized we didn't write it up that way, but they were only asking for another 25 caps, so I had the group do an opposed barter with Liza. As I mentioned, Clayton seems to be the designated barterer for the group because his numbers are better. Scott did assist, and with his help, they got more successes. Therefore, the deal was for 100 caps to bring both Manny and the goods back. They made their way north along the path Manny was supposed to be taken. They came across the building we'd noted would be the location, and the group saw the fire and smoke. The two robots decided to move in closer, and Jim was saying what he was saying rather loudly, as his character does tend to do the least optimal thing from time to time, and this would have been an occasion where silence and stealth is a better option. And what I mean by that is he was saying things like, I am going to go to the building to see what is going on. I am, you know, very loud. So yeah, we were all just kind of shrugging. They checked out what they could see through windows and doorways, but Jim and Tyler asked if it would be possible to bust through the walls. I did some quick mental math and realized that even if the walls were still standing, they'd be rather weak because of no roof support, as well as the temperatures that would have been softening some bricks during the explosions. So why not? I mean, it was dramatically cool, so I allowed it. Besides, I'd increased the number of Marvin's Carvins in the fight to an equal number to the group. So eight group members, eight bad guys. And that was almost a mistake. Clayton and Max were having issues hitting anything, and while the rest of the group was hitting their targets, my rolls were pretty darn good as well. In fact, Gabe and Braden's characters went down, which forced Clayton and Jim to take actions to stabilize them to get them back into the fight. Overall, the fight went four rounds, but in real time, it was the better part of an hour. Post-fight, they untied Manny, grabbed the loot, and returned to Liza's place. And, since they picked up a bunch more stuff to sell, they sold the stuff and bought more gear. We also leveled up, and since it was getting later, we wrapped the game for the week. And I do realize, and I kind of mentioned earlier, it seems like our sessions are going shorter than they were last season, and it's the truth. I can't really put my finger on what's causing it, but we're not getting quite as much game time in as we've gotten in the past. So you're not missing anything, trust me. It is something we're addressing, so hopefully these recaps are going to get a little longer as we go along. But that's the show for this week. Next week, we head to the Dome with our build, and we'll see what the group can come up with next. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine show, Roleplaying History. This week, we take a look at HOL and Black Dog Game Factory. Roleplaying History is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. This week, I need to note that my mentioning of the Fallout 4 video game is a reference to materials trademarked and copyrighted by Bethesda Games, and we mention the game for entertainment purposes only. That same note applies to our usage of the Fallout role-playing game, which is trademarked and copyrighted by Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda, and is also used here for entertainment purposes only. 
The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr. It's Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, it's badgmproductions.net. Next week, we advance the story to our group checking out the goings-on at the Dome. But that's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.